Well, it is good to be in the Lord's house again this last Sunday of 2020, and some of you might say after that, amen. It's almost over. Um, but anyway, it is a joy to be in the Lord's house uh, and close out this year as we did beginning it, and that is uh, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ and resting and trusting in him uh, with our tomorrow. I'm thankful that he says in Hebrews that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and what? Forevermore. Always, that's what that means, right? And uh, he does not change. So let me invite you to take your Bible, a uh, copy of God's Word this morning, just a few books over to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 1. Also, uh, January uh, the 6th will be 30 years uh, that Adirondack Bible Chapel has been Adirondack Bible Chapel, the church. And so uh, that's coming up uh, just in a week and a half, uh, 30 years we celebrate and think of God's faithfulness for um, doing what he said he would do in his word, and that is building his church. I will build my church, uh, and he has been doing that faithfully here, and so we want to uh, just rejoice in God, thankful for his faithfulness, not just that what Christ is doing in building his church uh, but also in uh, the church's faithfulness to the message which God has given it, and that is faithfulness to the word of God and, and the gospel these 30 years. We pray that that will always be the case here. Uh, and that should be a prayer request, uh, shouldn't it? We should not take those things for granted. And uh, so uh, we're looking forward to that in the days ahead, just celebrating and thinking of uh, God's faithfulness. Well, you have your Bibles open in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I intended this Christmas season, the past three weeks, three Sundays, uh, to, um, to just look at the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And, and in my mind, at least, it, it all connected with a theme. Uh, thankfully, I didn't follow my first intention that was doing the past, present, and future, uh, which is not new to me. I borrowed that off uh, the Christmas Carol, if you've seen the movie or read the book. Uh, but thankfully, uh, I don't always listen to myself. So um, anyway, I didn't do that. Uh, but I wanted to take this this season and, and just look at the person of Christ and, and things around him, involving him, who he is, uh, and, and try to take some things out of that and just uh, um, see how uh, the Bible reveals him to us. And we began by really emphasizing... Uh, couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, that the anticipation of a coming Messiah uh, and uh, how we are still living with an anticipation of a coming king. Uh, he will come back king of kings and lord of lords, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, and we are looking and anticipating that. And last week we uh, considered uh, Christ in his constitution. That's a good fun word, isn't it? Uh, we don't think of Christ that way, but his, who he is. He is truly God and truly man, as the Bible tells us in John chapter number 1, verse number 18, or as the old confessions would say, very God and very man. And uh, it's important for us to know that uh, because it, that is what the scripture tells us about this Messiah, this Christ. And so uh, we come to know him as the scripture reveals him to us. And this week I want to look at Christ and his office, really one of the main reasons um, one of my first thoughts of doing Christmas Advent, I just didn't do it uh, last week, waiting for this week, is Christ in his work. Why did he take on flesh? I might answer the question or ask the question 
Uh, is this just some kind of experience, uh, experiment that Jesus was trying to do or God was trying to do? You know, maybe see what it's like to have a beard and eat fish and, and walk on dirt like everyone else. Or was something more significant going on as he became flesh, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? Uh, which, of course, the answer is yes, there is something far more significant going on. You see that in our text here in the book of Hebrews, and I just want to read the first four verses for us. Um, actually, the first three verses, but we'll read four in the book of Hebrews, chapter number one. The Bible says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And just taking your mind back to last week, those of you who are with us and those of you who weren't considering who Jesus is, born in a manger and yet upholding the universe by the word of his power. He goes on and says, After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is a more excellent than theirs. And pray with me, will you? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this, uh, this passage of scripture, just the deep, rich uh, exposition of who Jesus Christ is in front of us. Lord, we just pray that you'd work in our hearts uh, even, even now as we, as we come gathered around your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, I think Ed in his reading uh, nailed what we've come to look at in the first part of Hebrews, found in the middle section of First uh, Timothy chapter number 2 is verse number 5, which states this, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And I can say that again. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, if our culture and the climate of the world that we live in is correct here in the West, then that is a very bold and audacious statement. In fact, it is a very unloving statement if you look at it from the cultural worldview, from the lens and way the world looks at things. If the Unitarian belief is right, it is complete heresy to say that there is just one mediator between God and man, just one way that, that we can bridge that gap between the distance of us and God. Yet there it is in the Word of God, plain stated by Paul, in a world that is filled with all sorts of religions, all sorts of venues to, to reach deity or to appease deity, he makes that bold statement, there is just one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's nothing new that we see this kind of implication, and that is that there is a need for mediation. There is a, a, a gulf or a gap when it comes to our uh, our understanding of who God is and our understanding of our own self. Job cries that, doesn't he, in the book of Job, chapter number 9, and verse 33, where he says, There is no arbiter between us, uh, one who might lay his hand on us both. 
you see that cry in his own struggle. Is there not someone to stand before God in my stead? And we might say that paganism and all of its floweriness and all of its cultic practices is just that same cry of humanity from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. That is, trying to appease the God in some way or some fashion, trying to bridge that gap or make that connection or, or, or do something in, in order to, to have some sort of mediation, some representation before God or the gods. Historically, when we look at the doctrine of mediation, historically the church has looked at that in the three offices which Christ holds. That is, the office uh, of him taking on flesh and the three offices which come through that in the prophet, priest, and king. Now, all of those images of prophet, priest, and king are steeped in the Old Testament as you read your Old Testament Bible. Uh, and if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, some of those images may be lost on us because we don't live in that same culture, environment. In fact, the letter of Hebrews is written to a culture which is familiar with signs and sacrifices and temples and covenants and priesthoods all of that to us is, well, it's like a history lesson. By God's grace, we have the Old Testament, but we have to dig and, and kind of stretch to get there to understand what he's saying. Yet, nevertheless, he is teaching us that Christ, in his fulfillment of these things, has not only benefited the Jewish religion, but all mankind. He has come in flesh, not only in this explanation, to benefit the Jews, but to benefit us all. So look at it with me first, as he mentions in verse 1 and 2. Jesus, the prophet. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Here you see the contrast in what, uh, what the writer is trying to get us to see. Pointing back to the Old Testament saying God used this office of prophet in the way in which he would communicate to the people of God. They would stand up and they would decry that, that famous statement that is thus saith the Lord. This is what God is saying. And so a prophet in the Old Testament was one who stood on God's behalf speaking to the people of God. They carried the message of God. Now they did more than that. We see in the Bible, they, they told the future and some other things like that that you see in some of the prophecies. But, but they did, they were the mouthpiece to man from God. They told the ways and the wills of God to the people of God. You see this most predominantly in the life of Moses being called by God and Elijah and Elisha being anointed prophet. And so here he is pointing out that God has spoken clearly in the Old Testament in many different ways, in many different manners through the prophets to the fathers. That would have been familiar if you'd have been used to that in your Old Testament Growing up in a Jewish home, you would have understood what it means to be a prophet. It was God's chosen mouthpiece. And yet what we've come to see here in verse number two is that he has done this historically, but yet most clearly and profoundly he speaks in these latter days, not just through prophets in the Old Testament, but most clearly through his son. In these last days, you see in verse number two, he has spoken to us by his son, a plurality of prophets and the singularity of his, his son. It is Christ who has come to declare the will and way of God. It is Christ who has come to explain and exegete, as we, we looked at last week in 1 John chapter number 1, the Father. 
And rightly so, because the Son, because of who He is. He is God in flesh. He tells us in Matthew chapter number 11, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except who? The Son, and to whom the Son will reveal Him. So here we see that he's trying to point us back to the fact that Jesus taking on flesh has come not to leave us guessing about God, but has come to clearly declare God to us, the will and way of God. And what is his message? Well, his message is himself. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Elijah would have been quite uh, out of place if Elijah would have come to the king and said, I proclaim you this day, fear me. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He tells the people of Israel on Mount Carmel not to turn and worship him and serve him. He says, choose you this day whom you will serve with either God or Baal. But here Christ points us to himself. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by him or but through him. And so you see the message which Jesus came bringing. The will and way of God is to believe on the only begotten Son of God. He has come to declare and proclaim the will and way of God that is himself. God authenticates this in the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter number 17, you might recall the story. They're all up on the mountain. Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah standing there. Peter has a great idea like we oftentimes do, right? The heat of the moment says, let's build a temple to all three of you guys, you know? And, and yet he hears a voice which says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Why? Because it is the words of Jesus, it is his message which has come to give, which gives life. And that's still true for us today. Jesus is still the prophet which, which proclaims the truth, which proclaims the way which leads to life everlasting. We are like Peter was instructed to hear him, listen to him as he sends out his messengers, as he has his word proclaimed to us, as the Spirit of God moves in our heart and opens our eyes to see what he, and what he has to say and who he is. He is the prophet which has come to teach us about God. Secondly, you see in this passage not only a prophet found in the first part of verse number 2, but continue reading with me, you see Jesus as our high priest. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, the, emphasizing his godness. But he goes on and says, after making purification for sin. So here the prophet has come to declare the ways and will of God. He has come to declare himself as the only means of salvation. As Paul says, he's the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And that mediation works involves Christ not only being a prophet, but being a priest to his people. Now the priest or the office of the priest was to represent God to man. The prophet represented God, or represented God to man, the priest represented man to God. Can't confuse my own self. To be a go-between in the service of God on their behalf. It was from Aaron that God chose out of the nation of Israel a line of men, not based upon their goodness, not because Aaron was a good man and, and he was good enough to be a priest, but it was the grace and mercy of God. In fact, what we find about Aaron is not only is he choose by God for this priest, high priestly office, but he's the very one that led him into idolatry while Moses was on the mountain getting the law of God. 
So it wasn't based upon Aaron's goodness. It was based upon the mercy and grace of God. So what does he do? He provides the people of God. He provides his nation a representative. They would not be left without a representative before him. That's what the priest's job was to do. To carry out religious practices and intercede for the people in several ways. One of which was in sacrificial practice. Now the people would bring a lamb to the, to the altar. They'd bring a lamb to the priest. And it was the priest who would, who would officiate and carry out that sacrificial order. They would offer up the sacrifice on behalf of the worshiper. It's a constant glaring reminder that sin in the nation of Israel, sin in humanity is a messy, ugly, bloody business. And I know there's a lot of people in here this morning that don't have the history behind them or enough, uh, enough time in this life to understand that reality. Sin is a messy, bloody, destructive business. The sacrificial system was one which was instituted to remind the worshiper constantly that the wages of sin is what? And they've seen it over and over. There was death being required at the offense of breaking God's commandments, breaking God's laws. And it was the priest that would, would go through this motion uh, and, and go through this order of offering these sacrifices to God. And yearly, God, by his grace, the priest would walk in bringing provisions for the people of God in the holies of holies. All through the system, it was a reminder of barricades and barriers and don't touch and don't go in and, and unclean. All of it bringing back to the fact that, that that distance between us and God was far greater than we could imagine. Instead of just declaring us being separated from God, what he did to the nation of Israel, for the nation of Israel, is he, he elected Aaron to stand in, in that place, to stand in that stead, to be a prefigure of what we come to see in Jesus Christ. Aaron would intercede for the people of God. The priest would intercede with prayer and incense and mediation. It was all to stand uh, stand for us before God. Stand in our stead. But here you see that, and turn with me to the book, uh, or to chapter number 7, or 10 rather. Here, the subject in, in verse number 3 is still the Son. It is He who has come to make purification for our sins. Again, some of you may be more familiar with this and you've studied this, you're just interested in it. Others of us may have to stretch a little bit more when we come to think about sacrifices and the sacrificial system. I think he kind of explains it very clearly here in chapter number 10. Uh, and I hope it'll be helpful as we look at this. Beginning in verse number one, he says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It could never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So you see this temporariness, the shadow's temporary. He said, out of all that went on, because it wasn't the permanent thing, it can never, out of those same sacrifices continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, it would have not, or otherwise, it would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshiper having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin. 
But in these sacrifices, speaking of the Old Testament, what Aaron did and, and, and his descendants in the temple that you come to read in your Old Testament, he goes on and says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. So Every year they go back, they offer up a sacrifice. Every year they're reminded of the sin of the people. Every year they're reminded of the need to be covered by blood. That's what he's saying there. But he says in verse number four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Constantly, consequentially, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I would just encourage you when you get home. Or maybe sometime throughout the day, just read the rest of chapter number 10 because he keeps emphasizing what he is saying here about what Christ has done for us. What is he saying? He's saying nothing you could bring at your own hands will make you right before God. No work that you could do, no offering of sacrifices, no, no amount of wealth that you could muster up, no, no good cattle or, or anything else that you could find in this life, nothing at your... At your own hand, can you offer up that will make you right before God? It's not that these sacrifices were bad or, or in the Old Testament or they wasn't needed. They were a sign. They were a picture. They wasn't the real thing. But they didn't do what many people, even in our good self-righteous world, think that they will do. They think by our own merits and our own attempts or our own efforts, we can earn favor or pleasure before God. That's what he's saying here. He says, you can offer all these things, but he says in verse number four, it is impossible but that by their blood that you could ever be justified. It is impossible. Now, if the law of God, which was set, the cultic practice of the, the Jewish nation all the way back in Exodus, all the way up, is unable to make the people of God perfect right before him, then how off are we? When we take those things which God has not condoned, not given to us in this world, and say, this is why God loves me, because I'm so very smart, or I'm so very good, or because I don't cheat on my taxes, or because if I do, it's only because I deserve a little extra help out, or because I don't hurt my neighbor, or because, well, I'm an American, after all, we're Christian, or because I live in a Christian home. All of these reasons... And there's a thousand more that we attribute favor from God, that we say that the, these things that we can offer up, these things that we can hold on will make us right before God. They will give us good standing. And what you, you see here that if God's sacrificial system was not sufficient enough to make the people right before God, then what we offer up surely isn't good enough. But what he points us to is the incarnation. Do you see what he said here in the passage? Because blood of bulls and goats were not adequate, they're not sufficient enough, because man is sin, man must pay the consequences of sin. Not bulls and goats, lambs and animals. But he says here in Christ, when Christ came into the world, sacrifices and often you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. There's the answer. Just as Adam sinned in the garden, just as man sinned, uh, all the way back in the book of Genesis, here by man, through man, this incarnation of, 
God becoming flesh, taking upon himself flesh, through that he would make right those who would draw near to him by faith. He became our substitute, our high priest. Instead of offering up something, a bull or a goat, he offers up himself in our stead. He is both our high priest and our sacrifice. You see that here in Hebrews chapter number 1, Hebrews chapter number 7, he has, or Hebrews chapter number 10, he has purified us from sin by taking our place. Now we've seen here in the last few weeks the, the image of a cradle. But it was just the prelude to the cross, wasn't it? A body. He took upon himself the human a human form, human nature, very man, so that he could take that human nature and pay the sin debt of all who would come to him by faith. So that he could be the propitiation to appease the wrath of God. For man is sin, man must pay the consequences of sin. That's what he says in Romans, Paul is speaking about that second Adam, that second man who came into the world, and by his obedience he will make many righteous. Amen? Our high priest is our sacrifice. Offering up not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood to the Father in our stead. But secondly, not only do you see then his priestly office, the, the sacrifice which he offered up, but you see his continual intercession. Look with me back in Hebrews chapter number 2, verses 17 and 18. There's something in this that, that I think, um, as I was working over this, just really encouraged me. As you talk about him paying the penalty, the sin debt of, uh, of his people, as he's paying that sin debt, purifying us from the guilt of our sin in this life. And I know oftentimes we live with the past. Sometimes it feels like we like the cartoon when you got a devil on your shoulders reminding you everything you did wrong in your life. And maybe it's not the devil sitting on your shoulder reminding you everything you've done wrong. Maybe it's your own mind or other people in your life. But what we've come to understand, because Christ died for sin, the Bible says when we put our faith in him, when he grants us forgiveness, that sin which he died for is forgiven. It says in Colossians, he put it away, nailing it to his cross. It means completely wiping the slate clean, not just temporarily, like I got you out of trouble, don't mess up again, you know. But no, for eternity, taking our Sin, giving us his righteousness forever. And the devil may be right bringing up our past and we may be right as our mind dressed back, but we're wrong in staying there. If you've truly trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, we have to go back to the cross and be like, that is true. That was yesterday. But I have been forgiven. I've been washed. I've been cleansed. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. God has done a great work. In us, who are a great high priest. And parents, you know this, don't you? And grandparents, you can't make your kids holy. You can't make them right before God. 
Paul lamenting in Romans chapter number 9, doesn't he? When he says, oh, that I would myself be a curse for my people's sake. He's basically saying, I would take hell if my people would just turn to Christ. But that's not possible. But it is possible to know where forgiveness and righteousness is found and continually point them over and over to the blood of Jesus Christ and that once and for all sacrifice. To pray for them, to encourage them, to point them continually to, to that one great high priest who can do what you and I cannot do. And we can take confidence in that. That they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. The consequences, the penalty of sin, saved from the wrath of God, forgiven because Jesus took that in our place. But he goes on and says not only in this, but in his continual mediation through intercession for us. Notice here in chapter number 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. That's, that's the incarnation again. That's him becoming flesh, dwelling among us. We read that in John chapter 1, verse number 14. And the word became flesh. He had to be made like this for this very particular reason. He goes on and says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he attempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He goes on and says in chapter number 4, verse number 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Have you ever thought of that in your own brokenness as you come before God? And sometimes he, he's kind of standing there like you are, you know, you've been that way with your children. We're not that righteous, are we? <laughs> They've messed up and you know it and you're going to let them know it. And yet what we see here is a faithful high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's not that even in our crying, even in our brokenness alone, that we are left alone and God is just waiting for us to get it all worked up and fixed. And then he'll come and comfort us. No, he says right in the midst of that, right in the, the middle of that brokenness, Jesus is moved by the very thing that we're going through in this life. Our temptations, our trials, our sorrows, our, our crying, our rejoicing, all of these things. God is not a stoic where he has no compassion and care for his people. Jesus taking on flesh, he says, he became our faithful high priest by going through the same life that we went through, the hardships of this life, yet without sin. So he is able in the midst of those things that you and I face, is able to sustain us and give us grace in those times. That's why grace is fit for every need. Because we have a high priest who knows every need in our life intimately. He goes on and says in chapter number 7 of that, I just encourage you to look at that and with me. Verse number 25. Speaking of Christ's intercession work, he says in verse number 25, Consequentially, he is able to save to the uttermost. To paraphrase one guy, we need an uttermost savior because we're to the uttermost sinners. He's speaking about Christ's complete work saving us. He said those who draw near to God through him. 
And that's the, that's the key right there to that passage, isn't it? Those who draw near to God through him. There's a lot of people who cry on God and call on to God, but, but there's the answer, isn't it? How do we know we're heard? Because we go to God through him. But he goes on and says, uh, in that since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that a fantastic hope and promise? There's never a moment where he does not live to make intercession for his people. There's never a moment in, in, in heaven, in the scene of heaven before the throne of God, are we left without a friend. There's never a moment in, in heaven are we left without someone who is constantly and always standing in our stead. And, and might I add, he is God the Son, ruling and reigning, as we'll look at in just a moment. And, and there's no one above him. Always continually making intercession, intercession for us. And some of you might ask, as I do, well, what about those who fail? What about those who sin? I get it when, I, when I'm going through tough stuff and Jesus is up there interceding for me and praying for me. And, and that's really great. That's comforting. But what about when I sin? When I blow it? What about you? The Bible says in John chapter number 2, 1 John chapter number 2, that even in those moments, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sin. Not just when you're, when you're struggling and life is hard, but when you just, you blew it. Christ still continually, always making intercession for us. As someone has once said, it, uh, and I thought, well, way to put it, he is moment by moment applying the atonement of his death, burial, and resurrection to us, continually interceding for us. Bunyan wrote this, Satan had the first word, but Christ the last. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate, which a gentle and lowly Dane Ortland goes further to state, his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. In that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. What is he saying? He's simply saying moment by moment, Jesus is continually interceding for us. There is never a moment where we are not in need of that intercession. And there is never a moment where Jesus is not offering it. You think of the magnitude of who he is. God, the infinite one who is able to intercede for you right now at this moment and intercede for the person beside you right now at this moment as if, he, as if you're the only one he's interceding for. And yet interceding for all his people. There's not a moment where you'll ever be so good. God will be saying, okay, Jesus, you take a break. You get the day off. Nobody's always interceding. We are so joined together in Christ that even before the throne, we are seated with him in heavenly places. Our declaration of justification is what it is. What is needed in our life and spoken of here in 1 John is that, that we need an advocate we need one who sympathizes with our weakness, one who calls us to himself, one who stands before God saying, I paid for the penalty of those sins, one who, who calls us to turn to him in our repentance when we do sin. It's easy to say when he, when he calls us to repent or in the midst of our failings and, and in the midst of our failures to think we're turning to a dreadful taskmaster. 
And yet what we come to see is that we're turning to one who loves us and gave his life for us and so zealous for our own lives, our own sanctifications, that he cannot bear the thought of our own stain and sin who will purify us one day fully as he is pure. That's who we turn to continually, our great high priest, our advocate. Thirdly, we look back in Hebrews chapter number 1. As we close with this, not only our high priest, not only our prophet, but our king. The office of kingship being instituted in the Old Testament, as we see with Saul being taken away from Saul because he tried to be priest and king, offering up sacrifices, and God says, not your place, you're not the one. God rejects Saul, David is then chosen to be king, and David has been given a great deal of promises referring to his seed, which will, will come and rule, and one who sits upon the throne of his father David, and that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was one to lead the people of God in faithfulness to, to God and rule over the people of God. And yet here we see it is no earthly king. It is God himself who will rule and reign Go back to the end of verse number two. He says, but in these last days he has spoken by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Is the radiance of his glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me just read a verse in Revelation. You can... Write this reference down. Revelation 1.5. He says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his, by his blood. We see a, a manifestation of Christ's rule. We anticipate a manifestation of that we don't see right now. And yet what we come to understand in the word of God, he is ruling his people. He is the head of his church. He is ruling his people through his word and through the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in their lives. He is sovereign, the sovereign one. John Calvin said this, and I thought uh, very fitting. He says, we may patiently pass through this life with its miseries, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles. Content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. You know, we face uh, 2021. It's not looking at, uh, very promising in some ways. And yet we come this morning to be reminded of ourselves that all we need, the fullness of all that we need has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Not in our earthly leaders. If you could go in the, in, in, in the Jewish mentality, the writer of Hebrews just says, let's take all of the, the great figures of your religion and of your history and say, Jesus is better. And the same thing is true for us in our Western world. We look at all the answers in life and, and society and all the people and all the, the, the big figures in the world around us and we come back to this reality. The, the, the hope that we have, the answer that we're looking for is found here in Jesus Christ. He is our all in all. 
He is our, our faithful prophet who continues to speak to us and encourage us and, and through his word guide us, reveal himself to us. He is a continual high priest who sustains us in our own temptations, who, who encourages us and continually intercedes for us. And he is our faithful king who guides us and rules over us. A loving king who rules over us. There's something in, in fairy tales about benevolent leaders that the real world has not seen much of. We like the idea of kings who are kind and compassionate. And beloved, can I say this morning, that's what the gospel teaches us. A king who steps off his throne in glory being exalted by the angels that he has created for his own purpose and steps down, takes flesh, becomes like us and dies for us so that we might have everlasting life. It is in Christ that we have all in all. It is in Christ that we have the fullness of what he has come to offer us. Well, now I know there's much to anticipate in the, in the days ahead. There's much to be fearful about. But I want you to take courage this morning. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ is now interceding for you. Christ is now proclaiming, speaking, guiding you through his word. Now, church, can I say this just kind of just in closing? That he does these means in this world through his people too. He has called us to be a kingdom of priests. And what we read this morning, part of that looks the way we pray for our leaders and intercede for those who can't intercede for themselves. As you see Christ in his fullness in his office, it, it, it encourages us to live this life, not for ourselves, but for his glory and the good of others. With that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for the subject. I know that in many ways, like our Christmas gifts, we can wrap it and, and sometimes the wrapping will be nice and sometimes not so nice. But the subject is always marvelous. The content on the inside, the matter which we come to handle week after week is always, it's always marvelous. Lord, I just pray this morning for those here who don't know you, those who, who are walking, need to be reminded of the ugliness the death and destruction which sin causes. I just pray you'd work that in their heart and life that they would even see that. Lord, I pray for all of us that this year that we would uh, be encouraged by uh, Christ's continual work on our behalf as our great high priest, our prophet, and our king. In Jesus' name, amen.